Hello and welcome to Prickly Politics. This is WFUV's podcast on New York City and state politics. I'm your host, Julia Agos, and today we're talking about prison reform in New York City. We want to frame this discussion with a major story that's been playing out in the news lately. The Close Rikers campaign just cleared a major hurdle last week in the New York City Council. They voted to close Rikers Island and move forward with a plan to construct four new borough-based jails. So I'm joined for this episode by my colleague, Elliot Schiaparelli. She's a fellow reporter and anchor here at WFUV. Elliot and I have been covering the Close Rikers campaign together over the past few months. So, Elliot, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to finally get to join you guys on Prickly and especially on an issue that's so important to New York City right now. That's right. So Mayor de Blasio called this move by the city council historic, and he declared the end of mass incarceration, which is a pretty big statement. And a lot of people agree with him, but not everyone sees this move to close Rikers in the same way. So Elliot and I are here to break down this issue for you. So Elliot, first, let's talk about the symbol that Rikers has become in in New York City, New York State and the nation uh, generally. So some pretty big words from the mayor, but they're not unwarranted. Rikers Island opened in 1932, and in recent years, reports have come out about the devastating conditions within the nearly 80-year-old prison. There have been reports of violence and even deaths in the prison, and it people say it's just generally mismanaged. It's supposed to be a holding facility, but some people end up spending years there. We spoke with someone, though, who's actually spent time on Rikers. So he'll go into more detail a little bit later in the show about the conditions. That's right. And the reason we're talking about Rikers today is because it's become representative of the much larger conversation that people are having in the state and across the country about prison reform. I would say the conversation is about whether jail is supposed to be a punishment or a rehabilitative place. And all these issues that we're talking about here speak to the larger issue of mass incarceration in the United States. So, Elliot, can you lay out the different perspectives that people have on the plan that the city council just voted on? Right. So the plan would build these smaller jails in Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx and Manhattan. There's four of them. And they would close Rikers by 2026 and move the remaining prison population into these jails. A lot of people really like this plan. They say it would bring those who are incarcerated closer to their families and make visiting easier. They say there would be reduced chances of violence with the smaller prison system. And finally, they really want Rikers closed because of, the, like we said before, the symbolicness of it. They say there would be reduced chances of violence with the smaller prison system. And they just really want Rikers Island closed because it's symbolic of greater issues associated with mass incarceration. But also, a lot of people are not on board. There's a conservative group of people that say it's just too expensive. The plan would cost the city $8 billion. And then there's some very progressive groups that say it's not doing enough. They think building more jails isn't a solution to mass incarceration. But the jails that the city is planning on building would only house about 3,000 inmates, down from roughly 7,000 currently incarcerated. And of course, this is all by 2026. Right. So the idea, the city council's plan is to close Rikers by 2026, build these four new jails in every borough except for Staten Island, and reduce the prison population in New York City by about 4,000 inmates. Which is over half. 
Right. So our first interview is with Andre Ward. He's the associate vice president for the Center for Public Policy at the Fortune Society. And the Fortune Society is an organization that is working within the criminal justice sphere. And their motto is building people, not prisons. So their goal is to advocate for successful re-entry for people who have been incarcerated, as well as promote alternatives to incarceration. So Andre oversees advocacy efforts at Fortune Society, um, and his goal is to reduce the prison population, among other things, at Fortune. We asked him about the Close Rikers campaign. We asked him about restorative justice. We asked him about a number of initiatives that the state has taken up in an effort to reduce the prison population. Andre is formerly incarcerated and he actually spent time on Rikers Island. And so he's here to give us some context for this Close Rikers issue. Um, he's going to tell us about his personal experience on Rikers Island and why he believes the facility needs to be closed. And then he also talks about some of the other initiatives that he thinks the city and the state should be taking up in order to reduce the prison population. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm great. So I'm here with my colleague, Elliot Schiaparelli. She's a reporter at WFUV, and um, she's been covering the Close Rikers campaign, so she's going to be sitting in on the interview as well. Yeah. Okay, Hi, perfect. really great to meet you. All right. So, Andre, just to start off, we wanted to ask you to explain a little bit about your role at the Fortune Society. Yeah. So currently I serve as the associate vice president for the David Rothenberg Center for Public Policy. And in that role, the idea is to advance the policy issues that Fortune um, espouses. And those things are notably around housing, around closed Rikers, as we're about to discuss and other areas that relate to criminal justice reform. And so the Dave Rothenberg Center for Public Policy is really designed to, again, advance those policy issues and to lift up criminal justice reform in a way um, that that hasn't been traditionally done. So you spent time on Rikers Island, and we wanted to know what your experience was on Rikers and how your experience influences your advocacy work today. Yeah, so I was on Rikers Island when I was um, 17 years old, and and the experience obviously was inhumane and unnatural. And so going into that environment as a teenager, when obviously my own brain was still developing and forming, um, highly impressed by that environment. And so its trauma, its its unnaturalness, its inhumanity, obviously shaped like my thinking as a way to survive in that space. And so going, staying in that space for over maybe 16 to 17 months, um, I had to defend myself. Um, I witnessed law enforcement officials there giving weapons to others who were incarcerated with me. Um, I experienced, you know, conflict among people that were incarcerated with me in a way that led to people being slashed or stabbed. Brutally hot weather during the summer months where we would have to sleep on the floor with sheets and put baby powder on us just to stay cool because it was so excruciatingly hot inside of the cells. So those experiences at the time of a teenager, you can only imagine was traumatizing for me, and I can only imagine for so many other of the men and obviously the women who also were incarcerated on Rikers Island experienced something similar. So based on all of that, can you explain to us why it's so important to close Rikers? It's important to close Rikers because, one, 
Again, it doesn't serve to support affirming the humanity and dignity of human beings. Human beings are capable of obviously making poor decisions in their lives and causing harm, but conversely, they're also able to redeem themselves and to grow into a person that lives a life of contribution. And Rikers Island does not serve to support people transforming their lives so they can return to their communities and live a life of contribution. So the solution that the city council voted in favor of on Thursday was borough-based jails. What are your thoughts on that? I think that borough-based jails is really a start to a much larger kind of outcome, which is the abolition of prisons to begin with. But we have to have a starting point. If we remain at the starting, if we remain at the place of keeping Rikers Island open and just sustaining the existence of that and the harm that's caused and the trauma that's caused and the inhumanity that exists therein, we don't get anywhere. So closing down of Rikers Island, creating the borough-based jails, and creating those borough-based jails with the idea, right, that they'll be better, they'll be smaller, and much more humane, I think is the way to go in this course of abolishing prison altogether. You have people in smaller jails, right? They're closer to their loved ones. The environment obviously um, affirms their humanity by way of allowing for sunlight and air condition. And equally as important, I would maintain, is the, you know, the involvement of different programs from different organizations to provide folk with the kind of supports needed to facilitate their transformation. So I think it's incredibly important to have the borough-based jails in place as a way to get to a point where we can abolish prisons. And one way that you abolish prisons is to address the thinking and the behavior of people who are causing harms or who have offended in some way or broke the law. When you put things in place to support them properly, people don't go back to prison. Hence the reason we will be able to abolish prisons. So I agree that the borough-based jails should be put in place. So what would you say to critics who are opposed to the borough-based jails because they say that it will disrupt their communities? Well, I mean, when we talk about the disruption of community, we have to always look at what causes disruption of community. Um, Rikers Island is a symbol of humanity and brutalism. Um, And if you have people in that kind of environment for too long, they'll be impacted by it. And so they'll return back to the communities Um, surviving and thinking the same way that they did while they were incarcerated on Rikers. So what do we do? Do we create uh, borough-based smaller jails that are more humane um, and more safer in a way that can allow for people to grow and transform so when they come out they won't harm the community? There'll be people that live a life of contribution? Or do we sustain something like a Rikers Island um, to only perpetuate the kind of behavior that we see um, happens there and when people are released Um, causing harm and offenses um, in society. So a lot of New Yorkers see Rikers as symbolic of everything that's wrong with the current criminal justice system. You talked about witnessing abuse firsthand. Can you talk a little bit more about that and the the cycle that people talk about of mass incarceration? Yeah, so, I mean, witnessing people harm others and even having to defend myself so I wouldn't be harmed um, creates this vicious cycle. Hurt people hurt people, as the saying goes. And so if you have, you know, been in an environment where, you know, you have not been given the skills and resources and programs necessary to allow you to redirect your anger, channel it in a certain way, articulate your emotions a certain way, you'll respond physically. 
we know this punitive, more retributive approach to supporting people to change their thinking and behavior does not work necessarily. And so when you address the humanity of people, right, when you expose them to an environment where they can grow, right, then you can create a space for people to accept their own accountability for their behavior. So when we're talking about this idea of, of punishment and, and punitive kind of actions and more retributive kind of actions, we have to say, what is our real approach? What is the end goal? Do we punish without a place for people to grow, or do we punish for the sake of punishment, and then there's no real accountability that takes place because it's a more external kind of act that's happening to them versus people taking account for themselves. So I think that we can arrive at the place of holding people accountable while at the same time supporting their transformation. But I'm curious, you know, so you say that the larger goal is prison abolition. Um, but then how do you reconcile that when speaking with you know, maybe a victim's family um, who says that the person that, you know, murdered my son or my husband should not be allowed to be out in society? Sure. And obviously we would always be sensitive to the families that have been experienced the harm that was done and the person who was harmed themselves even if it meant that person's life was taken. So all of those things are taken into account. And while it would be understanding that the family members would want this person never to see the light of day, we have to also ask ourselves that, you know, when this person is ever released, will that have changed the person's behavior if they spend 20, 30 years in prison? Or is there an alternative? Can this person be exposed to a process whereby they can take account, full account, for what they've done and heal, but first supporting with the healing of the families who have been impacted by the harm that that individual caused to their loved one. And that's why restorative justice practices and principles are so very important, because it supports with people being able to heal in some way. Remove that, people don't heal. They hold on to the harm that was caused and the hurt and pain and they, see, they don't see the humanity in the person. And I know that's not easy to say um, to a person that's had their loved one harmed. And I'll speak from experience. When I was incarcerated, my mom had been robbed. And so fortunately, they didn't harm my mom physically, but emotionally and psychologically, my mother was traumatized by that. Now, in my ignorance and in me not being exposed to different programs and being, you know, able to understand the harm that I've caused by virtue of being involved in those kind of programs while inside, I probably would have wanted to come home and harm somebody who did that to my mom. But what I said to my mom, if they apprehended a couple of people, right, I would want you to say if it was okay with her, right, I have a son in prison, and I understand that you come from circumstances and situations that impacts your decision-making. And I would ask that you please not ever do this to someone else, right? So I'm speaking, like, from a personal experience. So although my mom wasn't killed necessarily, she was traumatized and harmed. That's one example that because of my own engagement of programs and supports and my own introspection that came about as a result of being involved with those things, right, I was able to say that to my mom. So you obviously have so much personal experience with this, but to put a cap on the this question, can everyone be rehabilitated? I think all human beings have the capacity to grow and to change. 
right? Again, I think whether based on the environment that they're in, over time that allows them the opportunities to grow, and then their recognition of the need to grow and transform based on the environment they're in. I, some people may not want to embrace it necessarily, but at least we as a society cannot say that we did not give them and put them in an environment that would support their transformation and their growth. And so by the creation of the smaller jails and the boroughs, right, we can say unequivocally that we created spaces for people to grow and to transform. Well, Andre, those are all the questions that Elliot and I have for you today. We really appreciate your time and and your voice on this episode. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And on behalf of the Fortune Society, we're really grateful for this opportunity to be on your show. Julia, we talked a lot about Andre Ward from the Fortune Society, but you also talked to a legislator on this issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I couldn't be there for that interview. Yeah, so Assemblyman Courts comes at it from a different perspective. He's a criminal defense attorney and now works in the New York State Legislature. So he says he is in favor of closing Rikers, but he is opposed to the borough-based jails as they stand right now. And he's specifically opposed to the Manhattan borough-based jail because he says, It's just too big. He says that if we're going to do these smaller borough-based jails, they actually have to be small. He says that they should be limited to 100 or 300 inmates. So we sat down and we had a conversation here at WFEV Public Radio in studio, and we talked about Close Rikers and where he stands on the Close Rikers campaign, but then he also... We also talked about prison reform more in general, and we talked about some of the reforms that New York City might be able to take up in the future if he is elected Manhattan District Attorney. So I wanted to begin our conversation with some background on you because I think it speaks to your authority on the subject that we're going to be talking about today. So for our listeners, um, you're a representative in the New York State Assembly um, on the Upper East Side, um, and you worked as a, a pro bono attorney and a criminal defense attorney for a number of years. And so my first question is, what drew you to that line of work? Well, I found that I could really make the most impact in people's lives. And this was before I was elected, uh, representing people who could not afford an attorney. I did so first in the in my capacity uh, as a housing attorney through the Legal Aid Society in their civil division. I also represented people who could not, uh, had their Medicaid benefits cut off. And uh, I really felt great satisfaction while also being a, an attorney in private practice, but the ability to help people who were poor and uh who the court system was a foreign place, intimidating, and I could help for a better result. Not always success, but to help people navigate a difficult process, whether in civil court or now today uh, representing um, people in criminal court through the assigned counsel plan in Manhattan and the Bronx, where I get assigned cases or specifically days to be in court to represent people who cannot afford an attorney. So you still work as a pro bono attorney, even in your capacity as an assemblyman? I do. Two jobs. One is a, a legislator representing my constituents, 130,000 people in the Upper East Side of Manhattan and Midtown Manhattan. And I, I'm deeply honored to my eighth year of representation and hope to continue that. But I also represent people in criminal court and, and as much as possible and to, to get a better understanding of what people... Uh, disadvantaged individuals have to go through to navigate the criminal justice system. It is very difficult, and uh, my ability to be their advocate 
to the best of my ability and to help them through a difficult process uh, is a, certainly a rewarding experience for me. What would you say some of the biggest takeaways that you've gotten um, from your experience working both as you know pro bono and a criminal justice attorney? Or, I, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> criminal defense attorney. I, I think one of the things I've seen in, is the intersection of failed policies in the legislature and how they play out in the courtroom. So uh, a little history, I guess, is in order in 1995 uh, in the state legislature, well before my time there, but they put in a whole series of laws that punish poverty, that increase fines and surcharges on poor people for a whole host of crimes. And now, a quarter century later, representing poor people in criminal court, I see how that marginalizes people who have no position to pay these fines. And some, most times, the surcharges on the fines are well above what the fine would be. So it's a continuation of failed policies on, uh, from a legislative perspective and how they really target and worsen the condition and situation for poor people who have been given summonses or fines uh, for minor penny infractions. And this money-making opportunity for the city and state really is on the backs of poor people. So I see it from both ends, from a policy perspective on the failures uh, to not reform certain legislative proposals, and then representing my clients, uh, seeing the very difficult choices they have to fines and surcharges when, when they certainly don't have the money to pay either the fine or the surcharge. So do you think the, the failure from the state comes from a want to make more money? This was in 1995. It was a different era. It was the uh, quote-unquote tough-on-crime era. Um, we had uh, George Pataki was the governor of New York State, and the, half the legislature was controlled by the Republican Party. And at that time, there was a view that we needed to increase fines, increase punishment. And unfortunately, a lot of that got through, and we have yet to unravel it in Albany almost a quarter century later. And that plays out in a very real way for poor people each and every day in Manhattan, Manhattan Criminal Court, people who I represent and who others represent, uh, the difficult circumstances. It's not always about incarceration, as bad as the situation is with mass incarceration in our country, although we've done a better job here in New York City. But in many different ways, it is the punishment of poor people through fines, through surcharges, through money they in no shape uh, have to pay. And they'll have a bench warrant, and they'll be further ensconced in the criminal justice system when what they did to get in that courtroom in the first place, most people would say, was not all that criminal to begin with. What do you say to people who think that fines or what you're talking about work as a deterrent against crime? Yeah, there's no way. I, I mean, it, I that argument has been rejected by legal scholars, by people who have looked at the evidence, and uh, also... I think we're coming to a place, I hope we're coming to a place in this state, if not in this country, where the idea that longer fines and longer sentences uh, deter crime is simply, there's no evidence to prove. In fact, longer sentences and has a vast discriminatory impact, and that's been the feeder of our mass incarceration in this country. So um, I certainly reject that notion. So one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation about criminal justice reform and then kind of prison reform more specifically is the issue that has been in the headlines about Rikers Island mm -hmm. and the Close Rikers campaign. So I want to know, I mean, what is your position on Close Rikers? What do you think the city should be doing? Are you in favor of the borough-based jails or, or do you side more with the No New Jails campaign? Well, I'm against the construction of the facility in Lower Manhattan and Chinatown. I think for a couple reasons. It's antithetical uh, to the view of smaller local community jails. It's too large. It has too many beds. The capital costs are exorbitant. Um, I think we need to get to a different sort of approach 
smaller local community jails, um, not only jails, too, halfway houses, um, homeless shelters, and places where people with chemical uh, substance abuse addiction can be treated within the community. So we need a holistic and comprehensive plan for smaller local jails. Um, but the plan set forth with respect to the facility on White Street in Lower Manhattan, I oppose that. But are you in favor of other borough-based jails, or just specifically you're against that one in Manhattan? Well, that certainly that one in Manhattan. We need a different approach with smaller community jails throughout that borough or throughout each borough. And that is the better approach. Holistically look at smaller facilities, one, 200, 300 uh, at most um, jail facilities. So, And for, for a couple of reasons. One, um, your, these facilities will be able to be within communities so you you will have a connection between those communities and individuals who are incarcerated, not large construction facilities like, like the one proposed on White Street in Lower Manhattan. So I think that's the better approach. What do you think that the city and the state should be doing to lower the number of beds in the city and the state? Send less people to jail and send less people to Rikers Island and other pretrial jail facilities. Um, we can make, we made certain changes this year in, in Albany, but I want to go well beyond that. You know, it's not any secret. I've announced my intention to run for district attorney in Manhattan. There are a whole host of things individual district attorneys can do to reduce the number of people both in our jail population and as well as sentencing reform, sending people to state jail facilities with shorter sentences. So DAs in conjunction with the state and the city need to be part of the solution of sending less people to prison, whether in a pretrial, whether in misdemeanors, less than 365 days, or for shorter sentences at state facilities. Um, There's been some talk about um, discovery reform, making prosecutors' investigations more transparent. So if you were to be elected to be district attorney, would you support discovery reform? And, And how do you see that going? I was a co-sponsor and an advocate for probably my entire tenure in the legislature. And finally, in April, uh, as part of the budget uh, this past year, this session in Albany, we passed comprehensive discovery reform. And it was significant, and it will change the rules in in a very important way. Uh, Myself and I think six or seven other colleagues from Manhattan wrote a letter to our district attorney shortly after the budget asking or really demanding that the district attorney implement these reforms before they go into effect, which is on January 1st, because there's thousands of cases pending in Manhattan criminal court, and those individual defendants deserve to know what the evidence is against them. DA Vance has not responded as as to whether he would do that, but I think the reforms that I helped with others to pass in Albany will have a really important impact on reforming our criminal justice system. Unfortunately, it looks like it won't begin in Manhattan until January of next year. Um, And so for our listeners that have very little experience with the criminal justice system, what would that look like for the average person navigating the criminal justice system? Right. Let me give you a little background. Right now, the only rule that exists or law is so-called Brady material. And that's exculpatory evidence. What is exculpatory evidence? It's defined somewhat in various cases and case law throughout the state and through federal cases. But mostly it's what the district attorney deems to be exculpatory. And that can get litigated, but in most cases it doesn't. And what results is very little has to be turned over to defense counsel. And it really depends on the whim of the individual uh, district attorney and what the policies are in that office, whether there's the free flow of documents and so-called Rosario material, which, which which has to be produced, 
or not. Certain counties uh, throughout New York City, the district attorneys independently have uh, ha- have a more open and or liberal forms of discovery, even before the law was passed. Other counties like Manhattan, it's basically been trial by ambush. And the law we passed in April to be in effect in January changes that. It has set statutory deadlines for when various documents and information has to be produced, still giving the district attorneys the ability to seek a court order or go to court to prevent the name of a witness from being disclosed on public safety grounds. So I think we struck an appropriate balance, but the laws will change to make the system more fair beginning in January. Okay, well, thank you, Assemblyman, for um, again, for coming into our studio and, and having this conversation with me. It's been a well, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So that's our show. If you liked today's episode, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us, please. That'll help other listeners find our podcast. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at Prickly Politics to stay up to date in between episodes. A special thanks to our Prickly team, Maddie Bristow, Helen Stevenson, and Andrew Millman, and our editors, George Bodarki and Robin Shannon. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.